Can you can you ask a question so I can lead from there? Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Joining us on the program tonight, Cooper, a sysadmin that lives open source solutions, and Cursor, a software developer with a graduate degree and RF technologies. First, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. Also, we'd like to thank Axiom VPN, our solution for keeping our traffic on the internet protected and private. To learn more about the services that they provide, go to AxionVPN.com. Now, if you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of the Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us through email at info at dangerousminds.io. We'll be glad to talk to you about it. This week on Dangerous Minds Podcast, we have Ryan O'Shea from Grindhouse Wetware and Future Grind Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So could you start by introducing yourself and telling us what biohacking, grinding, and transhumanism means to you and your own grind, as it were? Sure. I'm Ryan O'Shea, perhaps best known in the biohacking community as the spokesperson for Grindhouse Wetware. Grindhouse has gotten some attention for the Circadia device, which was implanted in Germany in 2013, and more recently for the implantable Light Up North Star device. In addition to my work with Grindhouse, I'm the co-founder of the artificial intelligence startup Behavior. We're based out of Carnegie Mellon University, and we're currently competing in the IBM Watson AIX Prize. We're using physiological data from wearable devices, along with other data points, to predict human behavior. Our first use case is to help individuals battling drug addiction to avoid relapsing. I'm also the host of the Future Grind podcast, which is focused on science, technology, and futurism. You can find that on iTunes or at futuregrind.org. Professionally, I've worked as a journalist, a television producer, and as a host. I'm a public speaker, and you may have seen my talks at DEF CON, Body Hacking CON, or elsewhere. Now, for the second part of your question, I would say that transhumanism is just using technology to overcome human limitations. And we've been doing that for thousands of years, with clothing, transportation, and modern medicine. The difference now is that previously, the world was largely unchanged for centuries at a time. Now, the world is almost unrecognizable within a generation. And soon, that will be a few decades, and then a few years. What will it be like when we see what was previously thousands of years of human change and growth in short periods of time? That's what I want to find out, and that's what I want to build. So can you tell us a little bit about the origin of Grindhouse Wetware? You had mentioned a, you're the spokesman for it, so I'm guessing that means like PR, what have you. Yeah, Grindhouse Wetware was founded a little bit before I became involved by uh, Tim Cannon. He was one of the co-founders of it, which you had on podcast before. And... I, I guess, have always been interested in biohacking and transhumanism. I just never knew the vocabulary and that terminology, what those words meant. So, you know, growing up, I was interested in science and futurism and exponential technology and what that would mean for the future. And at one point, I was working in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., uh, where I had a brief stint. And I was just browsing the internet, and I found this news article about this man who had a chip implanted in his arm that could constantly send his temperature wirelessly to his android device and log his body temperature and that just astonished me because i was like this is what i've been waiting for for a long time i just thought it was years off and they are deeply involved in the technology so they weren't as interested in the getting your message out the explaining what you're doing and having a business plan and that's kind of where i came in and said this is my expertise this is where i can guide you i just want to be a part of this and that's kind of how i got involved with grindhouse wetware so as being the sort of the pr marketing man behind such a important and quite a big slice of 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 the world that we we work in do you ever find things difficult in terms of uh, I, I know you'd say that Grindhouse is probably the more far-sided of, of all the sort of mini groups. They're sort of out there with the technology that they, they bring, things like the Circadian. If, if you looked at pictures of that on the internet, you might think, you know, this is quite an extreme level of biohacking. Um, how, how, do you, how do you deal with getting out the PR that's on the good side as opposed to all the negative um, things that you see in, in terms of the, especially implantation procedures? 
Absolutely. It's a major problem. And that's one, one of the reasons that I think my role within the organization is so important because a lot of times, especially when Grindhouse first started, all of the press that happened about biohacking focused on that it was taboo. It's shocking. And because Tim and all the rest of the team were just focused on developing in the lab, they didn't have the time or the expertise to legitimize the press, the media, to see who was reaching out, to control their message, to control the tone. And a lot of that stuff was kind of running rampant. So when I came in, one of the things that I kind of implemented was we are going to be very strict about who we speak with. There are many well-respected companies, you know, national news organizations, both from America and internationally that reached out to us that we just didn't like the way that they were talking to us and the way that we thought they would portray us. And we didn't do that. What we are is we are fact-based, rational people who are doing do-it-yourself science. And if we're portrayed as anything other than that, that's inaccurate. And we really put the foot down on this is what we are. And if you're going to sensationalize this, we're not going to speak with you. But recently, I've noticed in the last couple of years, the shift in the media coverage of biohacking generally and Grindhouse specifically has really changed. We are now people on the forefront of science that are making the technology that's going to build the future. And I've noticed that as a societal shift. And I think that's a great sign. Why, why do you think that shift's come about? What, what do you think's pushed it in the right direction? Well, a lot of it is, I think the messaging is finally getting out there and it's becoming part of society with things like body hacking con, whereas previously to see an image of grindhouse wetware online and see this giant implant in someone's arm, you're going to form a lot of your own opinions about that. But when you get to read an interview with me or Tim Cannon or listen to this podcast and listen to the other grinders and biohackers that are out there doing their thing, you realize my misconceptions were completely wrong. You know, a five-minute conversation with any of these people who have disagreements about us and they start to see the light. They're like, oh, that's not far off. They're not crazy people. There's, there's a reason that they're doing this and they can articulate that reason and they're following the scientific method and that's what's going on here. And I absolutely love when a large media outlet posts on social media about us because then people in general society who have no idea that this is going on go on there and talk about their religious objections or how they think the government is tracking us or how we're all going to get cancer and die because there's something in our body. And I take the time to politely respond to those people. And nine times out of 10, their next response back to me is, oh, I understand. Thanks for taking the time to respond. I didn't think of it that way. And just changing these people's opinions one at a time is really starting to grow this. And um, you sort of talked about managing media, and I imagine that's you know, quite a big part of, of what you do. Has there ever been a time where you've said to, to the rest of the guys and, and the whole team, let's hold back on this, let's, let's keep this away from the public eye, they're not ready for this kind of thing yet, or maybe we should approach this from a different angle? Yeah, absolutely. That happens all the time. What I really love about the infrastructure that Grindhouse has is it's such a multidisciplinary group, which you really need to have in a biohacking collective because it touches so many different areas that everyone has their own expertise. You know, we have Marlo Weber from Australia and no one's going to question his electrical engineering because he's the guy that does that in the group. And no one's going to question Tim Cannon's software. Now, of course, we're going to say, hey, I think you could do this better. But if he looks at all the arguments and he makes his decision, we know enough about his expertise to respect that. And they do the same with me with media and business. And I think that's why we get along so well as a group and why we're growing so quickly. There are definitely times when we're not ready to take something public. And some of the people in Grindhouse, which I definitely respect, are more, you know, let's just get everything out there. Let's let society do with it what they will. I think in the long run, that might hurt our integrity and our trustworthiness. So I try to maintain the, the image and the respectability of Grindhouse when possible. That's a quite nice insight into how things run from, from the other side of the table. Also, uh, as, as we know, you also do a, a podcast, the, the Future Grind podcast. Um, I was wondering if you can tell us sort of what the role is with, with that and what, what your vision for the future is. Yeah, so I started the Future Grind podcast uh, a couple of years ago, and we only have a few episodes so far. We've been on hiatus when I got the professional media job at the ABC television affiliate station here in Pittsburgh. And really, we're kind of not dissimilar to what you're doing, although rather than focusing strictly on grinders and biohackers, we focus more broadly on futurism. So that would include things like singularity or transhumanism or artificial intelligence or self-driving cars, anything that fits more broadly into what in the future will impact our daily life. That's the kind of guest that we have on. 
So we've heard a little bit about uh, how you got involved with Grindhouse Wetware, and I'm curious what really, really draws you to the grinding scene, as it were, and how far you've come into it, uh, if you've gotten any implants yourself, or especially being a, a part of such a, a leading collective, if you don't have any implants yet, do you feel a lot of pressure to become augmented? And if so, what do you see as being like that first step? What would really drive you to get that first implant in you, that first taste of technology? I absolutely love citizen science and making and getting involved in self-education and all of that. And I think that really embodies the grinding and biohacking spirit. And that's what everyone does. You know, you go from place to place and everyone is teaching themselves electrical engineering and about chemistry and about the human body and what does what. And it's just this, this curiosity that everyone wants to satiate and everyone, no one in the biohacking community is okay in accepting of the limits they face now. Everyone wants to overcome limits and grow and achieve. And I think that's what we need more broadly as a society. I, I think, you know, the thinkers and the leaders and the movers, the people that built the world that we have today are the ones who had this curiosity in the past. I love to see that biohacking is pushing that forward. We're not okay waiting for academic institutions or corporate research and development or government agencies to decide where we should focus our attention. We want to build this technology ourselves. I look up to a lot of the people that I speak with and I'm friends with in this community, that they're all amazing people and they help me grow better myself. Uh, your question about implants, I actually do not have any implants myself. A lot of people in the grinding biohacking community at this point are very much into body modification. There's tattoos, there's piercings. I don't have any of that. And for that reason, many of the body modifications that are out there now, such as Grindhouse Wetware's North Star implant, really is a light under the skin. Now that does a lot of very interesting things beyond proving our technology, which was the point. It can backlight tattoos, it can serve as a light source, it mimics bioluminescence that some animals have. So it has a lot of interesting uses, but at the end of the day, it's largely aesthetic. And I am interested in more functional modifications. So things like RFIDs and NFCs where you can open doors, I'm very interested in that. The main barrier for me is the lack of a standard protocol. I don't want to have one chip for my door at my house. I don't have, want to have one chip for my office and one for my car. I want a single standard protocol that I can make payments, unlock doors, do all of that with one thing. And that's kind of what I'm waiting for. Uh, I think a lot of that depends on information security and making sure that whatever the standard protocol becomes is safe. But once we get beyond that to logging biometric data, like we plan on doing with the new version of Circadia at Grindhouse, once that comes out, I don't even think it'll be a question of, will I get an implant? I think it'll be a question of, will everyone in society get an implant? Once you can log your health data and it can actually show that you can save your life with something like this, who wouldn't want to get that? So you sort of speak there about um, sort of a use case for maybe yourself. Um, if you were to put yourself in like a customer role um, and, and apply that same, same logic, how would Grindhouse work as, as a business or, or how would they be able to fund themselves if, if everyone has the same idea, idea in terms of, you know, it's, it's a light under the skin, as, as you put it? You just brought up an ongoing conversation that we constantly have at Grindhouse. And I'm kind of on the short end of the stick when it comes to these things. I want to do customer discovery. I, I want to know what the customer wants. I want to know what people are looking for. You know, I've had conversations with plastic surgeons who have found out about what we're doing and are very interested in offering body modifications to their clientele, perhaps in a more regulated medical environment. And, and I really want to continue those conversations to see how can we get these out the door? How can we take this from a hacker space thing that we discuss in conferences around the world to something that people can actually go and get? And that's where I want to take this. The issue for now is magnets are great, but they have limitations. And we need to find a use case in which feeling vibration under the skin is significantly and obviously better than a wearable that has tactile sensation that you feel above your hand. And I think we're struggling to take this beyond a novelty at this point. And that's really what we need to do. And that's why I look forward to things like North Star version two with gesture recognition or circadia with the physiological data. At that point, there is no question 
that the implant is better than any peripheral or external wearable device. Would you maybe say that the issue with the magnet is you've almost got the solution, but you're trying to find the problem, as opposed to something, as you say, you know, the version two of things where where you've, or you've, you've got the real life problem and therefore you're creating a solution. It's almost like a backward waterfall model for, for magnets because, you know, magnets are great and, you know, they're, they're quite an interesting thing of, of what people can do with them. But you're, you're constantly looking for the problem after the solution. Yeah, I, I find that magnets are very often, the best use of them is when you don't expect them to be used. For example, you're just walking along a roadway or in a building and you feel a vibration. And that's something you weren't expected and you kind of learn something more about your environment. And since consciousness is defined as your awareness of your environment, having a magnet literally makes you more conscious. And I think that in and of itself makes it worthwhile to get a magnet and makes it something that's reasonable to do. The issue becomes what we do with things like the bottlenose device here at Grindhouse is we like to send data to the magnet that can be range finder data that can tell you the distance to and from an object if you're in a dark room. That could be Morse code that's sent from a bottlenose device connected to the internet with Bluetooth. So you could send any information in Morse code to the magnet. And that's great. And we've done that and we've proven it. You may have seen we were featured on Vice recently playing a poker game in which I was constantly sending the other players card information to Tim Cannon's finger magnet. And he was able to win the game based on this information. And that's a great little novelty explanation of how that could be used and how it's interesting. But at the end of the day, a smartwatch could do the same thing. I think we need to stop trying to justify the technology that we have and just make better things. I think I'll make sure I stick with uh, Tim during DEF CON um, through those casinos. Sure, yeah. I would sort of like to ask you, uh, you, you say you get plastic surgeons and things that are really, really keen on this technology and they obviously have the customer base for it. What's, what's the biggest thing that holds you back becoming you know, that, that production line? What, what holds it back? I am very interested in safety. I think all of us are. All of us are very interested in safety at Grindhouse because you know, we're actually putting our own health at risk. These are my friends who go under the knife literally to get these devices put in. So safety is paramount and we want to follow the FDA guidelines as best as we can, meaning we use as many FDA approved materials as we can. We follow laboratory standards of safety and protocols and how we should treat these things. But at the end of the day, if we were to follow through with FDA approval, which we would need to do for a plastic surgeon to insert our devices, that would eliminate the possibility for body modification artists who currently implant these devices to do so, because then it would become a medical device that you need medical training to implant. So that's kind of the gray line we're walking now. And right now, when you talk about implants, you're talking about things like magnets and RFIDs, NFCs, and the North Star and the Circadia which at this point are all just subdermal devices. They don't interact with the human body in any significant way other than getting data from it. But we want to begin building, augmenting, and replacing organs, the nervous system, and eventually the holy grail, of course, is working your way to the brain. And when we get to that point, no one that we currently consider a body modification artist has the necessary degrees and training and experience to do those procedures. What we need to create in biohacking is a new industry a new industry of people who are trained in what we would call today as a neurosurgeon, as a surgeon in any part of the body, but have them not focused on medical, that is not focused on bringing people who are arbitrarily considered diseased or unhealthy up to an equally arbitrary normal, but people who are interested in augmenting human capabilities. That's what I am most passionately advocating for. And that's what I think will need to have happen to have people go to these body shops and get a prosthetic limb or a new organ or a new sense or any kind of even aesthetic implant that they want to get. We need to have this infrastructure in place. And that's really what the societal conversation needs to be. So you mentioned uh, augmenting the brain. As you, as you know, the Alzheimer's and stroke are often enough uh, almost running rampant in our society today. So it just makes me wonder um, what, what direction as far as augmenting the brain, would you, how would you go about such? And would it then be assisting in recovery from such life debilitating diseases and consequences such as that? Or 
Is it more of extending senses, uh, experiencing your own environment? I'm just, I'm very much so curious about hearing more. Well, I'm not, I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not making any claims to be, but my understanding is, you know, we're, one of the big questions is when someone has Alzheimer's or some other memory loss disease, are those memories and those synapses, are they gone forever or is that recoverable? Is the information still in there? And there's some conflicting information regarding this. And the same thing with sensory augmentation. You know, neuroplasticity is an amazing thing. You can get used to new experiences. You can get used to living the world in a completely different way and your brain can rewire itself. But there are also cases where perhaps someone was blind or couldn't hear and they had a medical procedure to reinstate some of that sense and they can't process them and can't make sense of them. And they had asked to get their sense turned back off because they couldn't deal with living like that. And I think that's one of the things we're gonna deal with when we start adding senses to the human body is neuroplasticity is great, but can it handle and make sense of this input? I also have a lot of kind of, I guess they're philosophical concerns at this point, but when you talk about consciousness and you talk about identity and continuation of consciousness, can you upload your consciousness to a hard drive? Is that still you? Is it a copy of you? You get to the ship of Theseus problem where if you replace a brain piece by piece, you maintain the sanctity of the original even when none of it's left. And then at the same time, what if you take all those pieces you took out and reinstate them into another whole brain? Do you have two of you at that point? Uh, so I think you get into a lot of philosophical conversations when you're talking about working with the brain and consciousness. What I'm really looking forward to is kind of a brain-computer interface in which knowledge can be uploaded directly to the brain or in which you can connect directly with your electronic devices, your thought controls a text message that you send, or perhaps you cut off the middleman of the text message, your thought goes directly kind of telepathically to another person. That might sound like science fiction, but I don't think that that's that far off when we're working with reading brain waves and imaging them. You mentioned body shops and science fiction, what have you. It also makes me wonder a little bit more philosophy as well. You'd mentioned you know, taking out pieces of brain and then do you lose the whole? It then goes even further with you know society here in the United States. Often enough, uh, I'll just make a generalization: is often Judeo-Christian in origin. What's the moral imperative of the human condition towards augmentation? Is there a line that you you personally would think we can't cross before we no longer are human, no longer are then covered over under human rights? and then are merely a tool or a device that someone is able to own? These are all very interesting questions, and I don't think I have a hard and fast answer for any of them. When you're talking about morals, I will say that I don't necessarily believe that there is an objective morality. I think we see that evidence in my favor played out day to day in normal life, that no one can agree on what is actually good and bad. So trying to answer that question, I think, is kind of a dead end for us. What I'm more focused on is... What Sam Harris made a decent argument in a way that I somewhat disagree with, but I think he made some good points in defending that argument, which is that he said that science can help us answer moral questions. Again, he's using the problem word of moral there. What he said is how we should best distinguish good from bad is does what we're doing get rid of suffering in conscious creatures? And I think if you're anything that you do that eliminates suffering of conscious creatures is a good thing. And that says nothing about the sanctity of the human body or what makes us human or what makes us conscious because what we can say a lot of things don't make us human right it's not our limbs and our senses because you can lose a limb and you can lose a sense and you can still be a human i think the most common accepted answer of what makes us human is our consciousness and you can see this in some legal cases where someone is technically brain dead that is there's no brain function in the body but they are still artificially kept alive. Their cells are regenerating and dividing, but they're not considered a living person or considered dead. So that makes me think that your human life has nothing to do with your human body. It has to do with your consciousness. Then uh, with then your own consciousness being uploaded to a vice, would it be a device or would it be intellectual property or would it be you, just a copy of you in your own opinion? Because at that point, it's like if your organic self is no longer there, you're only available in a device, then further, are you then a commodity? Or are you still you? Uh, who owns you at that point, in your own opinion? I don't quite look at it like that. I don't think you are the device any more than we are our human bodies. I think you are the data that is stored in that device. Uh, I think there's a whole lot of conversations that we can't even begin to wrap our, our heads around yet. 
that we're going to need to start thinking about. We're starting that discussion societally now, and I hope it continues as to, you know, artificial intelligence is if we can't agree on what makes a human consciousness and we can't even agree on the consciousness of other people, which is to say, I know I have consciousness because I experience it. I have no idea if you have consciousness. How can we ever agree on the consciousness of an artificial system like an artificial intelligence to ever grant them rights or property ownership or IP or anything like that? That's the issue is when you are uploaded to a machine or in any kind of system you can potentially imagine, how do you prove that that's you? Your memories could be replaying on a loop and saying it's you and talking to people in conversations that you would have had and knowing your opinion on things. But is that really a conscious organism that is a continuation of you? I don't know how to answer that question yet. I think the safe solution would be to assume that they're conscious and go ahead and grant them that rights. What is there to lose if they're not really at that point? What you're talking about there is, is technology pushing almost an international law change um, across the board. I was wondering if you know of any forum that exists or whether this would have to be a creation of some some new forum to, to put that forward? I, I think there are a lot of different groups that are starting this conversation. None of them, I think, have the power that they need to have. You know, there are conferences around the world about AI that focus on these issues. There are scientific organizations that come together and say, how should we treat this? What should we do? But I don't, I don't see that happening on a worldwide level, and especially not in America. But America is becoming increasingly isolationist and standing off from working with the international community, which I think is a huge detriment. We need to come together as a people to solve these problems that impact all of humanity. Actually, this also makes me that much more curious. These days, we often see um, metadata and uh, basically just marketing towards uh, towards us based on our activity or shopping, often enough uh, through Facebook and other online retailers and uh, social networks just makes me wonder if this is like the new pioneering of sorts towards uh, further selling your identity fully at that point. Uh, talking about IP, what have you, it just it almost makes me that much more concerned about personal property, personal ownership of our digital life, to say the least. Yeah, that's a very interesting problem. And I think that's one of the important things at Grindhouse Wetware that we focus on is we're walking the fine line. I think Tim may have mentioned it on his episode of the podcast with you guys of we want to be open source. We want freedom of information. We want everyone to know what's going on. But at the same time, to achieve our goals, we need some income. We need some revenue. We need something coming in. And how are we going to fund ourselves if we give everything away for free? And should we go open source or closed source? And Tim brought it up on the episode, but I'll repeat it here as well because I think a lot more people should adopt this mentality is Elon Musk often makes a patent on his companies, whether it's SpaceX or Tesla or SolarCity, which he's a chairman of. And then he releases that patent after he has gained the wealth from it, open source to the public. So no one else, no other patent troll can come in and take that and lock it down, makes it open for everyone to use. And I think that is very important. So that's something that we're working towards. You talked about some, some issues here, but I was wondering if I know you do some work outside um, with, with another company. And I was wondering whether the same issues in terms of metadata, collecting data, et cetera, are the same limitations of working with devices that, that collect that kind of information about a person? Sure. So the other company I work with is called Behavior. We're an artificial intelligence company based out of Carnegie Mellon University. And we use wearable devices to get physiological metrics from the human body, and then to make predictions about human behavior based on that. And of course, you get into a lot of privacy regulations here when there is private data, essentially, like your health data, what could be more private than that, that is being analyzed and monitored by a machine and making predictions based off of. And then are we keeping that data secure? Can anyone else hack into that and get your heart rate at any given time of day? You know, there are some concerns there. I'm willing to give up some levels of privacy to have the benefits of the society that we live in. I think we've been doing that since the formation of government. You give up some rights and privacy for the protection. You know, you can go back to, to Thomas Hobbes and Paine and all of these different philosophers that have discussed this for literally hundreds of years. And we all come back to the same issue of what, how much privacy should you give up for protection and convenience? And that's something we're facing. So yeah, I would say there's definitely parallels there. There is concern from people about, will the government be able to track me? Will marketers be able to sell me things? And what we want to say at Grindhouse is, you own your data. 
whatever happens to it is only what you agree to happen with it. That said, there would be a lot of wealth and value to have all of that data stored so that we be, can begin making predictions about large portions of the population. I think the example we often use at Grindhouse is, let's say there's a natural disaster, another Hurricane Katrina. And if everyone has a circadian device implanted in them, live streaming that data out to a trusted source and a secure source, you would be able to tell where to send your disaster relief efforts. Who needs the food? Who needs the medicine? Who needs other resources that we can get to them? And by better prioritize these things. I, I look forward to the day when we have that information readily available. Just wanted to ask you another question um, regarding the, the two, two businesses that you're associated with. Uh, what I often find in my own personal um, experience is once you take an item and, and you implant it subdermally, a lot of people lose the sense of, of, of the limitations of that device. Um, RFID is, is a perfect example of this. People carry around cards every day that have RFID, but the minute you say that you've got one implanted in your hand, suddenly people forget the actual limitations of what the device can do. And I was wondering if, if you see this as well with, with your work that you're doing in wearables and also obviously the work you're doing with Grindhouse, whether you see that, that this is true. I would definitely say that people seem to forget the limitations of technology once it's implanted. And you're right, RFIDs and NFCs are the perfect example. I hear from many people who are concerned that these implants open you up to government tracking and surveillance, but this is essentially the same technology that is in security badges and key fobs that many people carry on them at all times to access buildings or unlock doors. The only tracking that is possible with this is a time code that might get generated when you swipe into a building. So if that's what you're worried about, then yes, these can track you, but no more so than conventional non-implanted systems. What really gets to me is that the people most often peddling these conspiracy theories are doing so online. They are posting to Facebook through their mobile apps from their phones, and if you've accepted Facebook's terms and conditions to do that, or if you are doing it through a major internet browser, then it's likely that your location is already being tracked, and that your personal information is accessed and analyzed. That is much more of a liability than any current implant is. But people don't seem to think about that. So we were talking about security and uh, data earlier and uh, closed source and open source just in um, revenue stages. But also I was curious about um, something we had heard uh, before with another member of your collective uh, talking about Grindhouse wetware versus uh, Cyan Labs and just trying to uh, get a little bit more information on that. Yeah, so Grindhouse Wetware is a few different things. It was founded as kind of a hacker collective, a bit of a think tank and a hobbyist group that tackles biohacking projects for fun, regardless of the commercial potential. But then we're also a biotechnology startup company that is organized as an LLC, and we want to eventually sell products and bring in revenue to fund additional projects. And of course the goal is to have wide market appeal. And one of the things we realize is that Grindhouse Wetware doesn't necessarily have the most consumer-friendly branding, and that perhaps an entirely new entity would be better suited to take implantable and augmentative technology to the next level. So some biohacking projects such as Bottlenose and Northstar V1 will continue to be released under the Grindhouse banner, but some of us are working to form a new startup known as Scion Labs, that's C-I-O-N Labs, that will focus on Circadia and other devices with the potential for mass adoption. We haven't launched that yet, but it's something to keep an eye out for. We have a lot of exciting things coming. How important is getting out of the, you know, quote, garage um, to, to the general public in terms of their adoption of, of, of what, you're, what you're producing? The world that was built around us today happened in a garage, or it happened in a dorm room, or it happened by people tinkering in lab spaces that they put together and in communal co-working spaces. And that's going to continue to grow. Whether you look at Facebook or Apple or any other of the large tech companies you can think of, these come from people working in a garage because they are passionate and they care. And that's exactly what biohacking is at this point. So talking about you know, seeking a change, seeking a moment, innovation, and getting out of the garage, dorm room, what have you, being the next Dell, all that. It just makes me then say, then, what is a grinder? What um, and what is their role in it? Uh, coming from the point of view of an organization that takes on 
that role even within their own name? Is a grinder a biohacker or are they something completely different in your mind? There's a whole lot of different definitions about this. And I think everyone you ask will give you a slightly different one. Biohacking has kind of become a marketing term recently. I said this, I think you recorded on my last panel discussion at Body Hacking Con, uh, designing implantable tech for everyone. And I said, if you were to look at the hashtag biohacking on Instagram right now, it's probably mainly pictures of avocado toast because that's what people think biohacking is. It's just eating a healthy lifestyle and exercising. Is that biohacking? Yeah, that's a very interesting thing. Uh, the kind of biohacking that we do at Grindhouse is augmenting human bodies with technology. And I think that's under the umbrella of transhumanism. Now, there is other biohacking, which is more on the DIY bio side, that isn't necessarily transhumanism at all. It's working with proteins and cell cultures and growing fungus and bacteria in a do-it-yourself environment, which I would say is also biohacking, but they're a very different world. And we communicate with them and we work together and we share information. I kind of avoid the term grinder. I don't have any problems with it, but I think it, it doesn't accurately express what we're doing to people who may not already be familiar with the term. And when we're a niche subculture in our infancy as we are now, I think getting out accurately what we're doing is important. So I try to avoid that term. So I stick with biohacker or transhumanist. A question that we've asked um, many of our guests on the podcast and one that I'm dying to ask you, especially because of your involvement in, in both different sections. But when does a device become a biohack as opposed to a wearable? So for example, you know, you could be wearing you know, like a smartwatch and this would be defined as a wearable. But when does this become a biohack? I talked about something similar to this at the inaugural Body Hacking Con about three years ago in Austin, Texas, when I gave my, my talk there. And what I said was, biohacking is only considered biohacking when a small percentage of the population does it. Once it becomes mainstream, it's no longer considered biohacking, even if it still meets those same requirements. For example, if you were to take experimental nootropics to improve your cognition or your focus or your attention, I would say a lot of people would consider that biohacking. If you were to go to Starbucks and pick up a large coffee because you wanted the caffeine to improve your focus and your attention and your memory, that's not biohacking. But really, it's the same method of trying to hack your biology using known properties of different substances to change your physical reaction and augment your abilities to do something. That's biohacking. And I would love to get to the point, and I think we're already almost there, where magnets are no longer biohacking, where RFID chips are no longer biohacking because they come so often. If you can get an RFID chip or an NFC chip to ride the subway and to pay for your coffee every morning, that's no longer considered biohacking. The biohackers will still exist, but they'll be on to the next thing. You know, we're going to be in the Grindhouse lab working on Imperius while everyone else is amazed that they can swipe their hand and get on the bus. And I think biohacking will continue to progress. But to answer your main question of when does a wearable become biohacking? What's the line there? I think it's really on your use. Are you buying a consumer product to count your steps and to track your calories and that's all you use it for? That's probably not what we would consider biohacking. If you buy that wearable device and you track your steps and you do all of that and then you make a change to your, your routine or your diet and then you log those changes again and see how that affects things, I would say you're probably biohacking. And my own thoughts as far as uh, what a biohack uh, augmentation, so to speak, versus medical uh, physical therapy as just uh, from my own background, being a stroke survivor, working my way towards becoming more my own normal. It then just then leads me that much further to ask, you know, is there a line between augmentation or um is it just more about the intent or the experience versus medical and physical therapy? Because that's, if you're using it towards a medical type of uh, point, isn't that when FDA wants to get involved and uh, regulate versus uh, someone that's just changing their own experience, their own environment to experience the world differently? 
Yeah, medical is an interesting term, and I'm not sure it has a proper definition that I would accept. And I think many different groups and regulatory organizations probably define medical differently, and a lot of doctors define medical differently. What were the earliest physicians and doctors, if not biohackers? I think they meet the exact definition of what we're doing today, just for different purposes. I would consider, in some ways, the whole medical industry a biohacking industry. That's literally what they're doing. They are just doing it in a more formal, regulated environment, which has value. There is definitely value in that. There is also the value in the biohacking sub-community where you don't have to have those issues. And someone can have more freedom of body autonomy to do what they want. And I think both of those things have value. I wouldn't want someone who is suffering from cancer to come to Grindhouse and say, give me an implant to cure my cancer. You should probably go to the hospital for that. You probably shouldn't go to the hospital if you want to see infrared. You should probably talk to some grinders about that because they might have some ideas. So do you see an, an alternative, um, let's call it medical station, if you like, or a different catalog that people could go to? Or do you see eventually in the future a fusion? So there are cosmetic surgeons today who are licensed medical doctors who do procedures with FDA-approved devices that are not necessarily for medical purposes. You can argue that a breast reduction or a breast increase or cosmetic surgery on your face to change your looks has some medical value. Sure, you can definitely make an argument there. But many people do these things for aesthetic purposes, yet they are done in a medical environment. And I think that's what we need to really see happening with biohacking, where just like you can today go to a cosmetic surgeon to augment your appearance with things that are considered acceptable. You will be able to go to a body shop to do similar procedures that are more elective and augmentative and change the body in perhaps more extreme ways. So talking about the future just really makes me wonder um, what you think might be missing in this world as far as an implant, as far as a device, whether it be wearable or put in and the body in some way, not just under the skin? And if so, what implant do you want to be developed? What I would really like to see is more of uh, interface where I can interface with my devices. I want to be able to think about something and have it done. I want my brain waves being read and I don't want that to be one-way communication. In addition to me communicating with my devices, I want my devices to communicate directly with my brain. And I think that's something that we are working towards, not only in the biohacking community where we're not quite working with the brain yet, but in industry as a whole, in science and technology, we're constantly imaging and studying the brain to try to figure out the chemistry of what happens there, what chemicals do what, what electric signals do what, how are memories stored, and, and can we upload knowledge to the brain? And something like that, where you're actually working with the brain and augmenting your experience on the world is really what I'm looking forward to. Because at that point, once you can increase knowledge or have access to the entirety of human knowledge, like the internet just connected to your brain, what will that mean for society? How quick will we advance at that point? But then uh, going further on that question, it just leads me to think of a, a black mirror and even a old uh, Outer Limits episode. Once you're connected, then how much more terrifying would then... Uh, malware and computer viruses and even you know the traditional realm of hacking be that implant might even make it even easier for a hacker to do their own uh, actions so to speak yeah that's something we always think about and it's something i think we should continue thinking about is what should we do is there a line that we should not cross nuclear power and nuclear weapons we're talking about it now with artificial intelligence and biochemical weapons, uh, bioterrorism, you know, what should we not develop? Should we really put the recipe for deadly infectious diseases on the internet? I mean, that's knowledge. And I guess there's some value in knowledge for knowledge's sake, but it, we're increasingly getting to the point where average people with limited resources can do severe damage to society as a whole. And I think that's only going to increase. And when you talk about things like Fermi's paradox, which is why are we not seeing alien life in the universe if mathematically and statistically it should exist? Perhaps one of the answers to that question is all previous alien civilizations, if they existed, got to the point where they got so intelligent that one rogue person among them could have wiped out the entire civilization. That's a very real concern that we're starting to see 
when you talk about issues with nuclear weapons and especially if everyone's connected to the internet through their brain, what could a hack do? What would that even mean and look like? So there are very serious concerns that we need to think about. And I, I don't have the answers to that, unfortunately. And I wouldn't trust any answer that I individually would come up with. I want to hear the thoughts of other biohackers. I want to hear the thoughts of elected political representatives. I want to hear the thoughts of other scientists. I think they have a point of view that's probably worth considering when you're dealing with something that's important. You mentioned nuclear war, uh, nuclear weapons as being a line that we shouldn't have crossed. Even one of the scientists that helped develop it, you know, you got that famous quote from him saying, you know, I have become death destroyer of worlds. Just makes me wonder when, where we might hear a hacker uh, and biohacker that has uh, that type of implant that gives him godlike powers uh, towards knowledge and accessibility of that knowledge throughout the world. When will he just simply say, I have become God? And then, like we have nuclear proliferation treaties, uh, just makes me wonder how long until we have like an international accords towards a biohacking treaty, trying to limit augmentation. Because um, we already have uh, biohackers um, creating a biohacker bill of rights. Should we then start thinking about uh, trying to draft internationally, uh, not just a bill of rights, uh, defending our right to augmentation and uh, experiencing the world through our own devices that we have implanted into us and on us, um, should we then think about drawing a line, drawing a, almost a augmented common sense uh, type of area to where we don't go too far? Just a clarification, I may have misspoken earlier. I don't necessarily think that nuclear weapons or nuclear power are something that shouldn't have been developed. That, that's a line that we shouldn't have crossed. I was just using the controversy around it as an example. But absolutely going forward, we need to have these international treaties and these treaties amongst institutions so that we know what we're working towards and that we can all agree what is good, what is worthwhile, and what should we probably not do. At the same time, we need to understand that there are people probably inspired just like we are to do things in their basement and garage that are not going to abide by any of those treaties. That, that's a given. That's going to happen. So the question becomes, how can you enforce it? How can you regulate it? And a lot of people in these biohacking and grinding communities are pretty anti-authoritarian people. They, they don't like anyone telling them what they can and cannot do which is very understandable when you're dealing with the existence of civilization, it's kind of a big issue. <laughs> you need to have some kind of agreement there, but we need to continue having these conversations. And that's one thing that I kind of disagree with Tim Cannon on is he often says, Hey, ethics aren't my deal. I'm the developing the technology. It's for the ivory tower institutions to develop what we should and should not do with them. And I think there needs to be a little bit of forethought before you developing something on whether you should or not. Just to steer the conversation in a little bit different way, as an individual that has chosen not to be augmented yet, it makes me kind of curious your standpoint on um, the idea of a physical biohacker versus um, the existence of a psychological biohacker. Someone that I identify, uh, to give you a definition of what a psychological Biohacker, as far as uh, my question is, someone that identifies with being a uh, cyborg or augmentive, but has not chosen to uh, become augmented yet, and may may in the future become uh, one as well, but at this point still identifies and labels themselves as being a cyborg uh, in a psychological way. As far as the term cyborg, uh, Grindhouse wetware members often get called cyborgs by media. That could be a little bit sensationalist. It definitely gets clicks. It definitely draws our message out there. So I'm fine with it. Call us what you will. But uh, based on my own strict definition of what a cyborg is, I don't think we have anyone that's a cyborg yet today. Or that if there are, there are people who have prosthetic limbs and pacemakers and artificial organs for medical purposes. I think that is much more technology interacting with the human body than any current biohack is. At the same time, there are academics who would say that we are cyborgs. We've perhaps been cyborgs since language was invented. We've perhaps become cyborgs since we have 
phones, smartphones that connect us to the entirety of human knowledge and can communicate across the world. I don't know that that's an important distinction to make. I don't consider myself a cyborg. It's not something I identify with. I am often called a biohacker. It's not something that I necessarily feel the need to be called. I, if someone said, you're not a biohacker because you're not augmented, that's fine. That's not going to hurt me in any way. What I do think that I am is a citizen scientist. I'm someone who's passionate about learning and about understanding, about having conversations. And I think that's a common thread for everyone who is within the biohacking community. So I'm not sure that fully answered your question there about the difference between a physical and a psychological biohacker, but I am interested in augmenting the human condition in, in any way possible. And like I said, I'm, I would love to get an implant. I would love to augment my abilities. What I see today is not yet at that point. And there are pioneers in this field now that are doing very risky things that I look up to. I am surrounded day by day with Grindhouse who are building the future of technology and I get to witness it and I look up to them and they are definitely the physical biohackers that are building the future of the world. Your discussion just there about cyborgs, um, I've noticed, uh, I think Tim's Twitter is Tim the Cyborg. I was wondering yes. sort of how, how valuable it is almost playing into the hands of, of, of the media in, in terms of using labels like cyborg. I think he loves it. I mean, I think he gets a kick out of getting a reaction from anyone for any reason. I, I think that's just Tim's personality. He, he's a great guy. I think a lot of it is branding. You know, he has he has a persona. He has the hat and the piercing. And, you know, I would not, I'm not going to say he's in character at any point. You know, he's definitely not. He's an authentic person. He's himself. But he enjoys that. And I don't mind it at all. You know, he could claim that he's a cyborg. He can refer to himself as such. I'm not going to argue that. I mean, he, he the man literally has technology circuits that he invented implanted in his body you can't get much more what is a modern day cyborg than that but at the end of the day we don't want to be cyborgs right we want to be non-biological really i think that biology is kind of a liability it's a hindrance too many things can go wrong and there are a lot of people that say oh rather than prosthetic limbs let's 3d print new organs let's 3d print biological limbs and that's fine if people want to do that i think that's a worthwhile area of work and endeavor and research but we understand technology in a way that we do not understand biology. And I think we should focus on that. So you're involved in, in many different things. Um, I was wondering what your advice would be to someone that's at the curious stage of, of, of looking into this uh, and that wants to get started in biohacking or um, citizen science in general. Yeah, I, I think research is your number one thing. I think one of the things you have to be careful of is pseudoscience, make sure that whoever you're listening to knows what they're talking about. Go to the experts in the field. We live in the age of the internet. You can do this now. You know, fact check everything. There, there are people who make claims that are unsubstantiated. And another thing I say is, it shocks me every time I'm anywhere with uh, Emil Grafster from Dangerous Things. And he has a line of people waiting to get an implant from him. And they're great implants. You know, there's nothing wrong with Dangerous Things. They're great. But many times I talk to people in these lines and they say, oh, I don't know exactly what protocol this implant is and I don't know what I'm going to use it for, but I'm just going to get it. And that's something that I, I would just never do. You know, I better see this thing work, know exactly how it works, see it proven before I put it in me. Every day we get more people who are joining this community and being a part of it. And I think that's great. Just make sure you do your research, find out what you're getting into, know the worst case scenario, understand that it is dangerous, that you are taking risks and that it should be worthwhile. And if you can't justify that worthwhile risk to yourself, you probably shouldn't do it. So in your own grind, what has been your favorite single uh, moment or the last one if there's been a few along the way? I love talking to people and sharing this message. When I am giving a talk and I am on stage and I say something that I see resonates with someone, biohacking was weird and obscure and didn't make sense. And then I make an analogy that clicks and I see it in their face and they're like, oh, I get it. And that's, to me, that's the best part of what I do. Being the spokesperson for Grindhouse and being an entrepreneur in other ways is spreading this message and making the change and seeing that happen and grow every day is really what I love to see. And it happens not only in person, but also in internet forums. You know, there are people that say, this is never something I heard of before. And so I saw this news article on Facebook, but they're commenting on it saying they understand, they look us up, they ask us questions. And they are just completely, all of a sudden, instantly passionate about what we're doing and want to know more. And to inspire that curiosity and that quest for knowledge in others really makes everything that we do worthwhile, I think. 
So the next question I have is maybe a bit of a personal question, um, but I was wondering, um, Ryan, what's the biggest impact you want to make? Well, that's a hard one. Um, I, I guess I generally, I mean, this might be cliche, but I want to build a better world moving forward. I, I'm focused on a lot of different grand challenges beyond the biohacking space. I, I think there are things that we should put a lot of our attention into, whether it's space flight, working with NASA or private companies like SpaceX who are pushing that next frontier in humanity forward. I'm passionate about that. I think artificial intelligence is a great way to get to that point. So biohacking is just one of a multi-pronged approach that I want to take to make a better humanity, to push humanity forward, to leave a better planet. So we've heard a little bit earlier about some of the work you're doing with Grindhouse and your other startup that you're working with. Are there any spoilers about any of the projects you would like to share with us now and possibly something you would reach out to the community uh, for assistance and uh, making it go forward? There's definitely a roadmap in place at Grindhouse what, where we have a plan and a timeline of things we want to do. Right now, this, the things that we're working on are North Star version 2, which is the same North Star device with the bioluminescence under the skin. It will also include gesture recognition. So you do a wave of the hand in the air and you can kick off an action to an Internet of Things powered device such as starting your car or locking your doors or turning on your lights. So that's probably going to be the next major implant that comes out from Grindhouse. After that, we're getting right into Circadia. You know, there's already been work on these boards, on the sensors. We're constantly doing research on this. And I think that's going to be the big one. That may be the first Scion Labs project that happens beyond the branding of Grindhouse Wetware. But when Circadia comes out and you get physiological metrics in real time, that's the big thing for us. Beyond that, I think uh, there was a little teaser that Lexi gave when she was on the podcast about the Imperius project, which is working with the peripheral nervous system. And, you know, from peripheral, we're going to start sending data directly to the nerves, to the nervous system, and getting data from the nervous system. And that's one of those ones that we're not even at the point of imagining commercial applications for yet. This is just pure scientific research and discovery and experimentation. And I think that's what gets everyone in Grindhouse so excited. But we have a list of probably dozens of projects and small tweaks to past projects that we would love to work on. But when you have resources that are so limited, whether it's time or finances or people, you need to prioritize. So there are so many different ways that the community can get involved. You know, we're always looking for people who are going to stick with us, to work with us. And we want to hear your ideas as well. And we're quickly getting to the point Elon Musk, I brought him up before, but he devised plans for Hyperloop, which is the fast transit with pneumatic tubes for humans. And he just didn't have the time or energy to develop that. So he put the white paper out on the internet and said, please build this thing that I don't have time to do. And that's kind of what we're doing at Grindhouse, working with other members of the biohacking community is we don't have time to do all these things. People, please do this. We'll help you where we can. And we, we want to build this forward. I think I really like that kind of cooperation uh, and collaboration that happens within the community. Because at the end of the day, I don't care what company or grinder group makes the implant that's going to let me do whatever. And I'd rather have the ability to do that than be the company that developed that. And I think if we're all working towards that same goal, it's going to happen. We can work with each other. I think that is quite an important sentiment. It's, it's something that I've, I've brought up as well um, for my own personal uh, opinion on the matter if if everyone works together for the same direction you know we can achieve leaps and bounds um you've you've spoken earlier on in the podcast about trying to get some more um consumer opinions ab about the way that biohacking should go i was wondering in general in regards to the biohacking community that already exists how important is their involvement and also what would you like to see them start to do that that's not currently happening the thing that drives people to biohacking is often an irreverence for authority, for consumer society, for intellectual property rights. They want everything to be freely accessible and they kind of shun the society as a whole. And that's kind of what drives them to build things for themselves. I, I think if we need to work a little bit better, you know, kind of change the system from within is something I would advocate. You have people like Tim Cannon who are completely against the political process as a whole. They would rather forget politics and government and just replace it with technology and, and AI and work with science, which is great. 
but you need to have political leaders who agree with you who say, let's take that direction, which I think is kind of the more route that I want to take. You know, this is kind of a uh, sci-fi space nerd uh, point of view question here of have you ever thought of incorporating any of your work, any of your projects that you've been involved with towards humanity's space race to Mars and possibly back to the moon? Yeah, when you think about the term cyborg, it, it was created to talk about humans in space, to talk about humans that could withstand the radiation and the pressures and the lack of breathable air in space. So cyborg is literally a term that was created to talk about human spaceflight. And I am passionate about that. You know, one of the things I also do is I work with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is based out of Caltech. Uh, I'm a solar system ambassador for them. So I would go around at different conferences here in the Pittsburgh area and present on the new information about what NASA is up to. And that's something that I love doing. NASA is just an amazing group of people who I think are really, you know, if you need any evidence at all, that taxpayer dollars being used to fund scientific research is worthwhile, look at NASA. I mean, just the first picture that was taken from space, you know, in the 60s to show Earth, it kicked off an entire environmental movement and made people think of the world as a whole ecosystem rather than individual countries with arbitrarily drawn borders. And I think that global perspective, that humanity perspective, is something that spaceflight gives us, that, that common goal, that common thread, and I would love to use Grindhouse Wetware technology to further that. You know, we've worked closely with Christopher Jeanette in the past, who is also working towards that. You know, he wants a Mars colony. He wants to develop spaceflight. I think he's working with a company now based out of Cape Canaveral, who is revolutionizing, you know, launching procedures for rockets. And these are the minds that we need. You know, I think they're very interrelated, spaceflight and biohacking. And we're going to continue to work very closely with them. So there's, there's a lot of challenges that obviously face the biohacking scene. Um, and one of them is the fact that it's a closed off sort of subculture. And I don't think this is the responsibility of the people. Um, it's mainly just the nature of, of what we do. Um, I was wondering, what do you think is missing to make it more mainstream or um, to appeal to a greater society, to make it more accessible or um, acceptable even? I know Zoltan Isfahan is a, controversial figure in the transhumanist and biohacking community. He was the one, if you don't know, who ran for president of the United States under the transhumanist party. And he's currently running for governor of California as, as a libertarian now. And I had him on my future grind podcast and I asked him the same question. And his response to me was, he thinks that we need people to go into media and journalism to get the word out there in a more accurate way. A lot of press portrayal about this is still skeptical, is still unsure, is still rooted in perhaps antiquated beliefs about what it is to be human, about what is moral, about what is right. And if we get more people spreading this message, that's great. And I happen to be a journalist. I happen to be someone who's worked for television news stations and newspapers and has my own podcast to really amplify this message out there. And I love what you guys are doing in the same vein to really spread this message and let people know what's going on. I think that's what we need. We need to be more present. We need to be out there in society to let them see what we're doing. There's a lot of entrepreneurial community here in Pittsburgh. I love to go to every event that I can and say, this is what I do. This is biohacking. And they're concerned at first for the first minute or two of the conversation. They say, am I talking to a crazy person? And then, and then it clicks and then they understand. And to get more people where that click happens for, that understand, I think is the best thing we can do. So with all these projects going and you know, all your speaking engagements, how are people able to keep up to date with your work? So I'll give you, I'll give you multiple different channels of, of the things that I'm working on and as well as my private accounts. So uh, Ryan O'Shea, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm on all of those. Um, just really just my name, Ryan O'Shea. You should search it and I, I should come up. For Grindhouse Wetware, we have a Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. And then for Behavior, which is my artificial intelligence company, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And just a spelling note, that is Behavior spelled with an extra I. So it's B-E-H-A-I for artificial intelligence, V-I-O-R. Uh, so that's where you can find us. And all of, we all have websites. Also, Future Grind has a Facebook page and thefuturegrind.org website so you can keep up with my episodes there uh so i should have some new episodes up 
by the time this podcast airs. So check the new content there. Definitely want to thank you for coming out today. Uh, do you have any final questions or comments, uh, both directed to you, Ryan, and, and you, Cursor? Well, I mean, I would love to speak directly to the audience that's listening to this podcast because they're the exact type of people that I think have the interest in the power and the wherewithal to make a difference. And I would encourage them to do that. So if you're kind of working alone right now and you're looking for a group to be a part of or some guidance, you know, reach out to us at Grindhouse Where Reach out to me personally. I'd be happy to help. I'd be happy to point you in the right direction. There's also Biohack Me, which is a great forum. Keep listening to podcast episodes just like this one to stay informed. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, I just want to thank you again for joining on the podcast. Um, Grindhouse is... is a subsection of, of a big umbrella that that is very important to myself. Um, I think it's the most maybe outgoing publicly um, part part of that pie, and um, it's always a pleasure to speak to you guys. Um, all the all the audience know how important the the Tim Cannon podcast was to me, and and this is no different. Well, we definitely appreciate it, and we look forward to you know continuing the conversation at any time. So thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we've. Definitely enjoyed uh, conversations with a number of the uh, members of Grindhouse Wetware over time. And it's always interesting to hear from the different points of view of your collective. Again, we've, we had uh, Ryan O'Shea today joining us. But if you want to learn more about this journey we take weekly, you know, do, do check out DangerousMinds.io. And all of us want to thank you, our listeners, uh, as we explore further the tech and the people behind it, this fastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, and implantable technology today. If you uh, like the program we, we share and the work that we're doing and in, this, in the community as a whole, please support us by going to our Patreon page and becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash dangerous minds. So, Please feel free to reach out to us with any questions or comments. You're welcome to find us at DangerousMinds.io or our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Dangerous Minds Podcast. And perhaps we might one day talk to you about the work and our projects you're exploring and developing. Until next week. This is a neural interface. We're going to stick it in your face. Still it in your brain and interlace. There's an arms war on and we're going to win the race. Leave everything in the race. Bring the face. All right, that's a good, good bit of content.